Our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, and beginning at verse 31. And you can find this in the newly restored Pew Bibles on page 980. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this series, just looking at the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we finish that series today, it may simply just be a beginning. A beginning of waiting, reflecting and longing for more of you. Amen. Well, just, sorry. Uh, we come today then to our last in our series on the incarnational Christ. And it's also Advent Sunday, of course. <coughs> we, that's where we started. So we put down our busyness uh, for a season and we start actively reflecting and thinking and waiting for the Christ who is to come. The Christ born in Bethlehem. But more than that, of course, for Christ the second coming. Christ, when he comes to put all things uh, right, when the kingdom of God that is being built is complete. So, minor themes this morning. When I was thinking about the kingdom of God <clears throat> and thinking about Jesus Christ, I thought, well, what was it that he said around this theme and of course when we were looking last week in Blackheath we were looking actually at John 18 it's a passage where Jesus stands in front of Pilate and is asked to sort of almost sum up his mission you know what are you being tried for why are you here and he says in fact the reason that I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world, but now my kingdom is from another place. So his purpose, the very reason Jesus came was to build a kingdom, a kingdom based on himself, on the truth. But what does that look like? Because after all, if it was me, I wouldn't start with a baby. 
It's a sort of small offering when you're trying to conquer the world. What does a kingdom look like? And I think at this point we probably expect it to be a defined place. Somewhere where we could uh, call home, as it were. Somewhere where we would feel welcome. It's a powerhouse. Probably the same nationality, the same outlook, bound together to be the best, the strongest, the largest. Probably the most efficient. If one was being unkind, you'd expect a a sense of self-importance, self-righteousness. We are the chosen people. I use that as a description, not about the people of Israel, although, of course, at this time they were called the chosen people. They did consider themselves waiting for release from oppression so that their kingdom could once again be established and the world could see that God was in his place because his people were in their place. And if that's what we think an earthly kingdom should be, a defined place that we call kingdom, what do we want from our leader? Well, I think I would want everything that I'm not, really. I'd want someone of strength, fairness, honesty, guile, charisma, caring, helpful, forgiving, patient and loving. A minor, that's the starting point anyway. And of course Jesus was all of those things. And yet when he came to build his kingdom, we didn't recognise him. What did we see? And what have we seen over these last few weeks? We've seen a Jesus who is confrontational. He's frankly irritating. Or he's an irritant. He's plain speaking. He's demanding. He's challenging. He's assertive. Last week we saw that he was the God of the divine. Supernatural miracles were happening. He was frustrating. Frankly, he mixed with all the wrong people. He sided with the wrong side. He defended the weak. He was unwilling to argue when we were shaking him. Come on, stand up for yourself. And he said not a word. He was unwilling to fight. And to top it all, right at the end, he has these mad claims of divinity. Astonishing. Jesus thinks he's God. And we can say that because, of course, the claims that were being levelled against him were from the religious community. They thought he was claiming to be God. We look at the Bible and we're, we're slightly confused. They weren't. They thought he was claiming to be the Messiah. So just as we started this series, we need to ask that question again. Who is this person? What type of kingdom are they building? Well, we read that passage of the mustard seed and the yeast. Again, it's a a passage about kingdom, but it's not the kingdom that you and I might imagine. The mustard seed is the smallest in the garden. It's not the smallest seed. I thought that for a long time. This is, this is wrong. It's the, the contrast 
because you can plant smaller seeds but they grow small plants the mustard seed is a small seed but it grows to about three metres high not quite a tree perhaps ornamental tree maybe (coughs) but it's large enough to accommodate birds in its branches it's large enough to provide shade and so on but why would you try to start a building why would you try to start a kingdom from such a small beginning we've already said Jesus came as a baby and what's more he then chose 12 uneducated unremarkable not socially important or persuasive relatively inarticulate people to start building his kingdom he's off his head isn't he hasn't he got that wrong and yet those same 12 people become devoted, determined dedicated and decisive exactly what you want but there's only 12 and centuries later the Christian church is the largest in the world maybe he got something right after all and then we turn to the yeast now I can talk longingly about the yeast I love making bread it's not that funny I do like making bread (laughs) for those on the live stream that didn't catch it Graham thinks I should have said beer no, bread okay, bread but I cheat I use the fast action dried yeast I also cheat because I just pour it into a bread maker press the button and walk away it's great During lockdown, we had our younger son with us who thought it would be great to make some sourdough. It was all the rage, apparently, in the first lockdown. So he took some bread and he put some sugar on it and some water and put it in the fridge and I said, you're ridiculous. Nothing grows in the fridge. Anyway, week after week, he would take some out, put a bit more sugar in, put a bit more water in, stir it, put it back. And then, he started toying with recipes and we had for well actually because he stayed with us for about nine months we had nine months of beautiful sourdough every day it was absolutely fantastic this uh, and it grew from nothing virtually nothing and this starter it proved he proved it he knocked it back he tried new recipes and it was wonderful and then you look at this passage and the lady here is putting her small piece of yeast into 60 pounds of flour do you know what 60 pounds looks like? one bag of flour is one and a half kilograms Okay, it's 18 bags of flour she's poured in a bowl with a little bit of yeast and the yeast works its way all the way through the whole batch of flour Yeast holds to the truth. It has a purpose and it achieves it. It's small. It's an organic motion. The business world uh, has always struggled. You're being blinded there, aren't you? Uh, the, The business world has long struggled with this sort of dilemma. Do you grow your business organically, adding one or two people at a time, 
Or, preferably, do you just go in, buy another business, and you double in size overnight? Much quicker, much easier, much faster, much more dynamic. But God chose to work by one person, one person, one person, organically moving slowly through the country. See, I think as people, we want that sort of business approach. We want God to come in. Just, just make it right. Make your kingdom. Build. If you're going to build a kingdom, build it. Just tell us what to do and we'll do it. Show us yourself and then we'll believe. Take away the free will. I don't need free will. If you're telling me that I need to be a Christian, just, just tell me to do it. Just dictate. Tell me clearly who Jesus was. But he doesn't do that. Instead, God has given us choice. He's given us free will. Which is the same, really, isn't it? Because in our postmodern enlightenment, we believe we know better than anybody. Better, certainly, than God. Because believing in God shows that we're weak. And actually, I'm very comfortable. I'm contented, and I don't need God. What's more, I think it's actually quite insulting. He's offering himself as a gift. And I like to earn my way. I like some respect. I like some self-dignity. I don't need to be given anything. He wants me to trust him. But I want ownership. I want to buy into something. He wants me to give up what I want and just follow him. I want control. We ultimately ask God for proof in our generation. Give me proof. Come again today, and then I'll believe you. Just come. C.S. Lewis asked or answered that same question in a very interesting way. He said, Why is God landing in this enemy occupied world in disguise and starting a sort of secret society to undermine the devil? Why is he not landing in force, invading it? Is it that he is not strong enough? Well, Christians think he's going to land in force. We don't know when. But we can guess why he is delaying. He wants to give us the chance of joining his side freely. God will invade. But I wonder whether people will ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world when they realise what it will be like when he does. When God comes, it is the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. That's what people are asking for. We live in the now. We live on Advent Sunday. We live on Good Friday, waiting for Easter Sunday. We live in the now. God's kingdom is now. But it's not yet complete. You want God to come? God will come, but then it's all over. The kingdom of God was not a powerhouse. It was not a mighty army, and it's not going to make one nation superior to all the others. We read in Luke, Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, 
The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. That's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? That the kingdom of God is in each one of us. That's why it doesn't come with flashes of lightning. Because it needs belief. It needs trust. It needs faith. Because it needs to change your very life. Let me quote from Yancey, which is the book we've been following in our series. Consistently, says Yancey, Jesus refused to use coercive power. He knowingly let one of his disciples betray him and then surrendered himself without protest to his captors. It never ceases to amaze me that Christian hope rests on Jesus whose message was rejected, whose love was spurned, who was condemned as a criminal and given a sentence of capital punishment. That's the kingdom of God. It's so upside down. It is so extraordinary to our thinking. Because it calls for personal sacrifice. It calls for service. It calls for selflessness. It's a radical nation. But the kingdom of God brings a new hope for humanity. It's just as we have here on this candle. Next week, there'll be two candles alight. And then the week after that, there'll be three, then four. And then in celebration, Christ comes as we light the central candle. And so it is with his kingdom. It's a great joy that his kingdom is within. He's touched each one of us. But that brings the demand with it that to spread his kingdom it relies on us. Us to speak, to behave, to touch others with God's love. To move that light from one candle to the second, to the third. That we as believers may be known as the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom can touch everybody. God's kingdom will be full of MPs. It will be full of the royal family. Be full of bushets and lords and also the prostitutes, the refugees, the drug addicts and people like me. That's why we find God's kingdom difficult to accept. I suspect that actually if God came in our generation we would still call him a madman. So as we wait for Christ this Christmas, what are we waiting for? Whom are we waiting for? Because if nothing else, this last few weeks has taught me that the Jesus that I thought I knew, I didn't. And he is so much more radical, so much more challenging, so much more demanding, so much more loving, so much more personable, so much more desiring, so much more giving than I ever thought. Just not in the ways that I thought he would do it.
what's the best for each one of us. God wants a life of purpose and assurance, a life of hope, a life to believe in. And that's why he calls us, each one, in turn, to have that faith. Faith to lay our life on the line for him, as God did for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to you, we are amazed. We are amazed at how you, uh, how you come to us. Despite all that we've done or the ways that we've let you down. Even so, you come. You have shared with us your love. We live in the now. And as we wait for your coming again, we pray that you would build your kingdom and we pray that you would start with us. Thank you, Father, for all that you've taught us over these last few weeks. And we pray that we may continue that journey as we wait your coming at Christmas, as we spend these four weeks actively waiting for your presence again. In your name. Amen.